one. When we, when we practiced that this morning, Caleb said, this isn't the normal version. It's a little bit different. You all know the normal version, and you wanted to sing the normal version, and we couldn't quite get the different one going. Ah, but we worship all the same, right? Perfect, imperfect, out of tune, loud. I hope, you know, a few months back I said, sing loud. You know, even if you can't, I, I think maybe you've stopped. Um, we need to, I need to remind you of that. Loud, sing loud. You know, even if you couldn't beat your way out of a, I don't know, I forget how that goes. So this morning, uh, if you would turn to the book of Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 today, as we finish up this series, uh, Courageous, Stepping Up to God's Promises, as we look at one other New Testament figure this morning. Now, we're going to be talking about being traitors this morning, and we've talked about this before, and I think we need to revisit this at least once a year, uh, because we trade for something. Um, uh, Really, every day we trade for something, and what determines whether a trade is good or bad? Well, I think it's simple. Uh, I think we would say a trade is good if what you get from what you you gave up makes it a good trade. You know, the uh, well, it wasn't really a trade, but um, the Texans didn't really get what they thought they were getting, right? Um, spent lots of money, and I think they would say that what they gave up, maybe they didn't quite get what they hoped they would. Um, do you know of any good trades? Do you know of any good traders? Um, here's one of the greatest fairly recent trade stories that I've ever heard in my life. And you might remember this because I've used this before. But in 2005, Kyle McDonald made two critical decisions. First, he was going to get his own house. And second, he wasn't going to pay a single penny for it. Okay, now he didn't steal it. Um, that's not how he got it. So as he, as he sat daydreaming at the foot of a clunky 1990s computer monitor in his dismal little Montreal apartment, he remembered an old childhood game he used to play called Bigger and Better. We've played it here in youth group. Bigger and Better. I, have, I actually have a recliner in my house, in my basement, that we, my team got for a Bigger and Better one night here in the town of Lingle. Lots of stories about that. The, the objective of the game is to start with something simple, like a penny or something, and you go trade to get something better for that penny, and then you trade, and then you trade, and you trade. And what, this, what, what Kyle started out with was a red paper clip. Now, it wasn't this big, but, but this was sort of for the story and all of that. He decided that he was going to trade this red paper clip for a house. And so, starting in July, on July 14th, 2005, the, the 14 trades that I'm going to tell you transpired, okay? He, he told people on the internet when he said, this is, you know, I've got this paper clip, I want to trade it, and, and this is my goal, and, and here's the thing. Um, if you are willing to trade something for this, I will come meet you wherever you are. Okay, so the first thing he did was he traded the red paper clip to a young woman in Vancouver for a fish-shaped pen. Second, he traded the pen for a hand-sculpted doorknob that looked like a face in Seattle, Washington. Again, he's going to these places. He traded the doorknob for a Coleman camping stove in Amherst, Massachusetts. He traded the camping stove for a Honda generator in California. That's a good trade, I think. He traded the generator for an empty keg of beer, an IOU for filling the keg with a beer of his choice, and a neon Budweiser sign in Masspeth, Queens. You can determine whether that's a good trader. He traded the keg for a snowmobile in Quebec. 
He traded the snowmobile for a two-person trip to Yak, British Columbia. Y-A-H-K. I looked it up. It's 127 people. They have a, a house or a store that has grass on the awning and goats that live on it. Okay? The local attraction in Yak, British Columbia. Um, he traded, he didn't trade both because I think he wanted one for himself. He traded one of the spots on the Yak trip for a moving van. I'd say that's a pretty good trade. He traded the moving van for a one-day recording contract with Metalworks in Mississauga, Ontario. He then traded the recording contract for a year of rent for a home in Phoenix, Arizona. That was a good trade. Unless you could really sing, then it wasn't maybe a good trade. He traded the year of rent for one afternoon with Alice Cooper. Right? I know, you're thinking, really? He gave that up for, anyway, he traded one afternoon with Alice Cooper. Now, this is the trade that I don't get at all. Um, He traded one afternoon with Alice Cooper for a Kiss motorized snow globe. I don't know that that's really worth anything. However, he traded the snow globe for a speaking role in a film that's going to be, that was going to be filmed in Canada. He then traded the speaking role in the film for this, a two-story farmhouse in Kipling, Saskatchewan. Pretty good trader, I think. Now, I don't think all of us could do that, obviously. You know, I, no, I'm not going to say that, but um, we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul today, and he knew a thing or two about trading. Um, Have you ever heard of him, Paul? Uh, Paul traded in a very successful rabbinic lifestyle. He is one of the top leaders, religious leaders of his day. High position, probably lived well, ate well, I'm sure. He traded in that so he could go tell Gentiles, people who were not Jews, about a man that all the other Jews hated. Would you say that's a good trade Eh, in today's standards? We would say, that was terrible. Why would you trade for that? But we're going to see today that Paul was a great trader. And we can be traders that way as well. One of the things that concerns me about the contemporary church today is that many times that many times we think that what we trade for in, in giving up our sin life too many times we think that what we're trading for is ministry, for, uh, that we're trading that in for doing things for God. And that's really not it at all. That's really unfortunate. I mean, we, we want to serve him, and we're going to talk about that, but that's not what we trade for. As we read the, letter of, of the letters of Paul in the New Testament, we often see flashbacks. For instance, he will, he will give a theological concept, and then for like 12 verses, he'll go back and, and he'll, he'll review his former life or, or what life was like for him. Uh, some think that Paul was a little ADD. I think in the power of the Holy Spirit, it wasn't ADD. It was the fact that, that God wanted us to know what made Paul tick. And, and ultimately, that we were, even though he was one of the greatest missionaries to ever live, that we were so much like him, and that he was so much like us. See, God wanted us to know that as far as sinners are concerned, um, Paul was in the same mess that we are. In fact, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul referred to himself as the chief of all sinners. 
And and in our passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 8, we're going to see five things that Paul courageously traded for and that we can trade for these things as well. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. The first thing that Paul traded for was Christ. It was Christ. Paul, you see, Paul was Christocentric. He, he centered his entire life on Jesus Christ. Paul says that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. See, the argument could be made that he was actually a prisoner of Nero. Nero is the one who put him in prison. But, but that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't see it that way. Paul is focused on the sovereignty of God, that, that God knows all, does all, wills all. And Paul was so focused on that that, that in all of the circumstances that surrounded his life, the lordship of Jesus was so much more important than anything else. Whenever Paul describes himself, he describes himself in relation to Christ. Paul says, I am a servant to Christ. I am a slave to Christ. I am a minister of Christ. In Philippians, Paul says that for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. One commentator says this about Paul. Paul was a Christ-intoxicated man. I just like the the image that that gives. Paul was a Christ-intoxicated man. I mean, I, I'm learning to be this, and, and every day something new happens in my life, whether it's, it's little or big, difficult, challenging. Some things are simple and satisfying. But no matter what happens in my life, I want to be able to say it's because of Jesus. It's, it's, I, I want to focus my life on Jesus. I want to be under the influence of Jesus every day. In the book Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning said this, when the religious views of others interpose between us and the primary experience of Jesus as the Christ, we become unconvinced and unpersuasive travel agents handing out brochures to places we've never visited. I've said that before. I want to say it again. When the religious views of others get in the way, get in between us and our primary experience of Jesus as the Christ, we become unconvinced, unpersuasive travel agents handing out brochures to places we've never visited. Have you ever, have you ever talked to somebody about going to an exotic place and they're like, yeah, I hear that's a really great place. You know, I've seen brochures and I've seen pictures and stuff and here even look at some of these. And, and, and then have you ever talked to somebody who's actually been to one of those places? I mean, I could tell you about this beach in the Bahamas that is nothing short of amazing. It's, honestly, it's just a beach. At the end of it, it there, there is this coral formation. My wife and I snorkeled there. The fish were unreal. And when you walk down this beach, it's like, it's like they dumped tons and tons of brown sugar on the ground. It is so fine and so soft. And it was just so wonderful. I mean, does that not sound a little bit different than somebody who's just showing you a brochure. And sometimes when we tell people about our faith in Christ, that's what we are. We're just sort of pointing to some pictures and saying, I hear it's great. But we can experience it ourselves. We can experience it ourselves. I always used to say as, as youth pastor to our, our student, to, to our adult leaders, that it can't happen through you until it happens to you. If you try to tell a kid something that you've not experienced yourself or that's not real to you, they're going to see right through it, and you're going to be completely unconvincing. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
I don't know how many times I myself have been overwhelmed with how much Jesus loves me. And it seems like the world gets in the way of this. I get so busy that I just don't take time to think about it and focus on it. And it doesn't move me, and it should. It really should. I mean, I think we get glimpses of it, like those times when we really recognize how sinful and how lost we are without Jesus Christ. And when we find ourselves on our knees going, oh God, I'm just so wretched and, and so lost without you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. That's, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knew that we were going to be like we are today, and he still did it. That's love. That is love. He actually loves me. You see, he actually loves you. For real. I mean, we have to say that in our culture today because everybody's so cynical, right? I'm not going to lie to you, right? We say that. To be honest with you, he loves you. He loves you. He really does. And, and here's the thing. I could be the best pastor on the planet and his love for me would never change. It wouldn't be better than it was before. And if, if I'm a pastor like I am, full of warts and failures and missteps, his love doesn't change. He loves me, period. He loves you, period. I heard someone once say, I know why people burn out doing ministry. I know why people burn out serving in the church. They, they're, they're doing good things. And I know why they burn out, because they started out walking with Jesus, and they found themselves eventually working for him. We're not here to work for Jesus. We're here to walk with him. He wants us to walk with him. They start out walking with Jesus and they end up working for him. Being a courageous trader is walking with Jesus and just taking others alongside of us as we go along the journey. Hey, I'm, hey, I'm going to McDonald's. Anybody want to go? Hey, we're getting together Wednesday night and studying the Bible. You want to come join us? Hey, Jesus did this one thing for me. Can I tell you about it? And, and here's the thing. Paul traded his rabbinic lifestyle and the law that he knew everything about and followed for Christ. And if that had been all that he traded it for, that would have been enough. And, and it is enough. Are you a Christ-intoxicated woman? Are you a Christ-intoxicated man? Do you live your life under the influence daily of Jesus? Because that's what we trade all that other stuff. The American dream. Give it up. Live for Christ. But there's actually more in this text. Paul goes on. Verse 2, Paul says this, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me, for you. The second thing Paul traded for was grace. It was grace. Philip Yancey calls grace the last great word. It's Jesus' unmerited favor upon us, his unmerited kindness towards us, his undeserved love for us. We don't deserve it. We shouldn't get it, but we do. That's grace. There's two words. If, you're, if you don't mind writing in your Bible and you do this regularly, circle, and you haven't already, circle the word administration and the word grace. This use of the word administration here is interesting. 
Um, you won't find it in the New American Standard. The New American Standard actually uses the word stewardship. And in the original language, that's what it means. Stewardship. And, and you know the concept of stewardship, right? Um, in the ancient world, when a wealthy landowner wanted to go on vacation, he would leave his best, most trusted servant in charge of everything. Jesus told parables about this. And when that landowner, you know, they didn't jet set across, you know, for a few days and come back. They left for weeks and months. And when they would come back, they would expect their place to be the same but better. They would expect there to have been an increase in their wealth, an increase. You know, there's the, the parent, the, the, there's a parable Jesus talks about that, and the guy that buries the stuff in the backyard, and the, the guy wasn't too happy when he got back, and all he returned to him was what he left him with. That's what stewardship is. And, and Paul's not talking about money here or resources or time. Paul is talking here about grace, that we are stewards of grace. What does that look like then in the context of this passage? You see, in order for us to be stewards of God's grace, we have to first experience it ourselves. Paul experienced it first, and what an experience it was, Right? Um, in Acts chapter 8, 1 through 3, it says this, and Paul and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Whose death? Stephen's death. We talked about Stephen last week. Paul gave approval to the stoning death of Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Paul is causing this. Saul is causing this. He's pushing it. In his place. In verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and he put them in prison. And then he experienced grace. You know, many of us would say, hang him, right? If we were watching a movie and he was the bad guy, we'd want him to get it in the end. But that's not how God operates, that's not how God works. See, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was confronted with Jesus Christ himself, and he believed, and he was rescued. He surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who gave his life as a ransom for Paul and for you and for me. We celebrate it today. And we know he experienced grace because from that moment on, he was never the same again. In fact, it took a while for people to trust him. I mean, if, if you had just seen this man drag your friends off and throw them in prison in the name of, of religion because they believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and then he turns around and says, hey, I'm on your team. Yeah, right. It took a while, but eventually it happened. And people became convinced themselves that this amazing grace had occurred in the life of Paul. And Paul reminds us often of the grace that he experienced because he repeats many times in all of his writings, I was the worst there ever was. He recognized his place. He recognized how much he needed Jesus. I was the chief of all sinners and Jesus still rescued me. Paul never got over grace. He never took it for granted. He never got used to it. But in his experience of grace, God laid it on his heart. Okay, here's the thing. Grace, isn't just a, grace is a great thing, and it's not something that you just receive and you sit back in your chair and you go, 
you know, like when you buy fire insurance for your house, right? Or some sort of piece of insurance or something that gives you assurance that if something bad were to happen, that you'll be okay. That's not what Paul's attitude was. He, he didn't just kind of sit back and say, phew, wow, glad, glad I'm saved, did he? He became, he became a trafficker in grace. There's all sorts of bad traffickers in our world today. Let's be traffickers of grace. That's what Paul was. He couldn't wait to tell people and share about this amazing grace of Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons why he became one of the greatest missionaries of all time. He was not unconvinced. He had experienced it. So we embrace it, we receive this grace, and and then we give it. Paul traded in law for grace from God to us and then through us to others. So first of all, Paul traded for Christ, then he traded for grace, but, but we're not finished yet. The third thing Paul traded for was ministry, Paul tra- or for, for the mystery. Paul traded for the mystery. It goes on there in verse 2 and 3. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already bre- written briefly in English, What is a mystery? A mystery is something that you know nothing about, right? And that you may not ever know. It's obscure, it's dark, it's secret, it's puzzling. What is mysterious is inexplicable, even incomprehensible. The Greek word here for mystery is mysterion. It it, it means it's different. It simply means something that was once hidden but now has been made known. That's the mystery that Paul is talking about. And now we all know because it's been revealed. Paul also wrote about the mystery in his letter to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Christ is the mystery Paul is a Christ-intoxicated man, isn't he? So the mystery is Christ. And in Colossians 1.27, Paul says this, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ indwelling in me. And in finally verses 4 through 6 of Galatians chapter 3. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. What a great thing. We know the mystery. And we are saved because of it. We are joint heirs Here is the complete mystery. The complete union of Jews and Gentiles together with each other through the union of both individually with Christ. Jews with Christ, Gentiles with Christ, and because we are in Christ together, we are in Christ. The mystery is this. Christ, Christ in me, Christ in us. This is the mystery. This is the message, and Paul taught it. Everywhere he went. So I'm not asking you to trade in the American dream so that you can go try real hard to bear fruit. Because that's really kind of what we do. 
That's what I do. I'm asking you to become courageous traders who are Christ-intoxicated people, traffickers of God's grace, and messengers of the mystery, living our lives in Christ as he expresses his life in us and through us, and praying that people around us will see it and want it. I mean, that little girl with that Bible that's sharing about her dad and how his life was changed, you tell me that wouldn't convince you. Honestly? God's word is so powerful. Now, it can be a scary thing to think of ourselves as messengers of the mystery because I might have to talk or tell somebody my story or something like that, and Satan convinces us that we're terrible at it and that we might screw it up and that sort of thing. Well, look at Ephesians chapter 6, 19, and 20 right here. This is Paul speaking, and this is what he says. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Twice he says that, and he wouldn't be asking for prayer if he didn't think that there might be some fear there. Paul Paul needed the believers to pray for him so that he could proclaim, so that he wouldn't be scared. So this is what we courageously trade for. Christ, grace, the mystery. We have two more to go really quick. Verse 6 says, This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul traded for the church. This is new. This is a new thing that, that, that God is raising up in, in the first century. It's the church, members together in one body. Paul is now reminding them of the incredible dynamic of the church. The church is the only entity on the planet that can bring Jews and Gentiles together. The church is the only place that can bring former Muslims and former Jews together on the front row, worshiping God together. It happens every Sunday in almost every church. People that wouldn't normally get along, they're together for one purpose. Their lives have been changed by Christ and they sit side by side worshiping. Many parts, one body. The church is less than perfect, that is for sure. If you ever have anybody, to, if you ever have anybody say to you, oh, you go to that church, they think they're perfect. Oh my goodness gracious, where did they ever hear that? Because this is totally not true. But the church proclaims the hope of the world together. The church brings Christ to the world. We are the body of Christ. And we have churches all over the world today doing the very same thing that we're doing today. Many of them maybe even celebrating communion today. People that wouldn't normally sit by each other. There is no other organization, no other group or cause that can be messengers of the, of the mystery of Christ than the church. Christ-intoxicated traffickers of grace. A grace that can give all people in all circumstances hope. Hope. The church, in the midst of its faults and weaknesses, is a very beautiful thing. I mean, I love the church. And the church is not a building. It's us. We are the church. 
So whatever you trade in for, never turn your back on the church. Seriously. As imperfect as she is, she is God's chosen tool. And then the fifth one is this. Paul traded for ministry. And that is what we do. And Paul has a really great perspective on this. Look at verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Have you ever said this? Oh, I'm so thankful that God did this for me. What can I do for him now? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever said that to yourself? I'm going to do so much for God because he saved me. God, if you'll just do this for me, then I will, right, sort of make a deal with God. So then our ministry becomes our gift to him because that's what that is. We're sort of paying him back. But that's not Paul's perspective. Paul says God's grace is so unbelievably rich and full in his infinite grace, he's even seen fit to include me in his ministry. Man, what a gift. It's, it's God's gift to us, not our gift to him. Because ministry is a gift of his grace to me. I will not compare my station in life with others. I don't want to look at someone else and say, man, I wish I had their ministry. I wish I, was, I, wish, I wish I was them. Now, I don't want to do that. There have been times where I've thought that. Because that was God's gracious gift to them and what they're doing and where he has them. What you are doing, whatever profession or whatever journey of life you're on right now, that's God's gracious gift to you. And he wants to use you to be a trafficker of grace in whatever area you are in. It could be your family, it could be a school, it could be a business. And that's God's gracious gift to us. We are a part of the body. So let's be courageous traders. Trading the American dream, American success, American riches and comfort for Christ. For Christ. Let's trade for Christ, for grace, the mystery, the church, and for ministry. If you didn't write this down, write this down at the bottom of your notes. Christ! Exclamation point. Christ in me! Exclamation point. Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Father, thank you for this gift of, of grace and salvation. And Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize that, that you love us because of who you are and that we love because of who you are. And Father, if there's anyone in here today who would think to themselves, I'm just not sure if when I die, I would be in heaven. Father, I pray that they would find the answers to those questions, that they would, that they would look to you, that they would call out on your name, that you would save them. Father, thank you for this, for the gift of communion and uh, the reminder that it is of the death and resurrection 
how you paid the, the price. You were the perfect sacrifice. Dying for us while we were yet sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as the ushers come up and we distribute the cup and the bread, you don't have to be 